I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined. When Raina Wynn and her husband Moth lost their home, extreme distance walking provided a path forward and had the unexpected benefit of slowing Moth's illness. Eight years later, his neurodegenerative disease had worsened, and Wynne and Moth had no other alternative. Thousands of hectares of heather and bog, and big black mountains that seemed to just be rising out of the ground as if they were still erupting in parts. So we arrived there, with Moth's health at the worst point it's ever been, and started to just walk. And later, finding the courage to keep on walking. We can embrace the rain and the mud and the pine needles and say, this is life. Here's the joy of life. Or we can say, I can't do what I could do 20 years ago, so there's no point even trying. Hope, perseverance, and the inspiring magic of the natural world. With long-distance walker Raina Wynn, that's coming up on Life Examined. The natural world has many beneficial effects on both our physical and emotional well-being. But for British walker and author Raina Wynne, the natural world is an intrinsic part of who she is. For Wynne, it's not just being in a landscape, it's becoming one with the landscape. Her walks, which have taken her through some of the toughest terrain in Britain and lasted for months, started after she and her husband became homeless. Then, the 600-mile journey by foot gave them direction and purpose and showed them the path forward with an unexpected benefit. Her husband's symptoms from a rare and terminal degenerative disease subsided with each day of walking. Eight years later, his symptoms returned. Would another extreme walk help or be too much? In her latest book, Landlines, the remarkable story of a thousand-mile journey across Britain, author Raina Wynne takes us on their incredible journey together. Frequently exposed to harsh weather, living in a tent, and with minimal food, they persevered. Raina Wynne, welcome to Life Examined. Hi, Jonathan. It's really great to uh, join you too. You have written so beautifully over the years about just the simple act of walking. So talk to me about the latest idea to take this incredibly long walk through Scotland. What was going on in your life such that you presented this to your husband, Moth? Can you tell us that story? Well, I probably really need to go back a little way just to explain that. Yeah. Um, Moth had been diagnosed um, some years ago with a neurodegenerative disease. It's an illness that has no treatment, no cure. It's called corticobasal degeneration. And it had been explained to us, it's well known that that it's a degenerative disease, so it it can't improve. But then um, we had walked the southwest coast path and his health had it had changed in all the ways we'd been told were impossible. Hmm. So when we found ourselves um, during the pandemic, during the COVID outbreak in the, the winter of 2021, not walking as far as we had discovered actually made a difference to his health, um, then during that time, during that winter, his health was declining really quickly. And the symptoms of, of his illness really were starting to come to the fore much more strongly than they ever had before. And and to the point where he was he was beginning to accept that that would be so, accept that that there was no way back. And this was now we were hitting the, the later stages of his illness. But I couldn't accept that. I couldn't accept the idea of just saying that was the future now without 
trying just one more time to to see if another walk would would change his health as it had before mm. so um so I found a guidebook on the shelf, an unused guidebook to uh, a trail in the UK where we'd always wanted to go, where Moth had always wanted to go, but had never had time or, yeah, time to visit and really spend time there. Um, and it was the Cape Wrath Trail in the very northwest of Scotland. Yeah, so I left the guidebook in the kitchen and... Uh, in a bathroom and on the table <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> until the day came when he eventually came to uh, came to the kitchen and slapped it on the worktop and said hmm, going to scotland are we <laughs> yeah oh beautiful so yeah I, I i'm hearing that in a sense it was it was i'm not going to accept this illness as it is let's let's try this together one more time let's go out into a wild place let's move our bodies and i mean were you thinking that this you know this was going to be another path to healing or this was just another way to reconnect as two people who love each other to talk to me more about where your mind was at wanting to pursue this well when we'd walked uh, on a coast path it had just been about a walk it had been about walking because we had nowhere to be yeah. um but we discovered this change in his health and we'd sort of hung on to that over the years after because we tried to keep walking as much as possible but during that lockdown we hadn't been able to walk so it was very much it was driven by the idea that just one more one more long walk would maybe allow his health to improve as it had before but also if it didn't then this was the last chance we had to to spend time out in the wilderness together before his illness really did make that impossible so then how, how was it to set out on this incredibly long walk? And I, I have never been to that part of Scotland or really to Scotland, but I, I have visions of an incredibly wild, windswept place with tumultuous weather patterns. And to tell me about what it was like to be there and to start moving. I don't think you'd be wrong in thinking that, actually. Uh -huh. uh, the very, very northwest of Scotland is its like nowhere else in this country. It is really remote. It's just, it's just thousands of hectares of heather and bog and mountains, big black mountains that seem to just be rising out of the ground as if they're still erupting in parts. It felt more, the very north of Scotland, it feels more like Iceland than it does the highlands mm. of Scotland. It's um, a very different place. So we arrived there with Moth's health at the worst point it's ever been um, and started to just walk. We uh, we set off with our, our rucksacks, with our tents, with our, you know, bit of camping equipment and uh, set off with hope really mm. and those first few days and weeks on the path were really tough going because we were in on the most difficult trail in this country mm. uh, miles between places where we could find food how are his symptoms like can you talk about what he was experiencing and and how that plays in to this this illness 
Well, it's a, it's a neurodegenerative illness that, um, that affects the control of movement. Mm. It also affects thinking and numerous other just things that we take for, take for granted in our bodies. Um, and he was finding, he was finding movement very stiff, very difficult. He'd had a few falls before we set off. His fine motor movements were, were slowing down. So he was finding it difficult to do the, the small stuff like tying bootlaces and fastening rucksack straps. Um, but also his thinking had become a little bit clouded. So, so the things that he'd always been able to do so readily, like map reading with a compass, they'd always been like second nature to him. Mm. But now it was as if it was a foreign language and he couldn't, he couldn't find his way through it. Um, and exhaustion, exhaustion like he'd never experienced in his life. Mm. So that if he fell asleep, he could sleep for 12 hours with, with no problem whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Pretty tricky when you're hiking because you sort of need to keep moving, um, which you can't do when one of you is asleep for 12 or 14 hours at a time. Yes. Um, yeah, so there were, it, was, it wasn't easy. <laughs> but he wanted to walk, I take it. He wanted to be out there and, and move. And so how did his health transform in one direction or another as you began in this very difficult early stretch? It was really, really, I think in the very early days, a matter of I'd persuaded him to go. Um, and he thought he really needed to stop and just let this illness take its progression because he'd almost lost the will to keep fighting it. Mm -hmm. And so I was just consumed with guilt to start with. But yeah, we, we walked through some incredible landscape through mountains and and through you know incredible weather where we were in sun one day and and a foot of snow the next and yet slowly slowly his health started to improve very slowly we started to realize that he was walking a little further sleeping a little bit less and mm. uh, and that that gave us the the will to keep going i think how do you explain that? Because at this point, you had seen this before in a previous hike together. How do you explain someone's health improving with a neurodegenerative disorder when I my sense is that the medical community and advice is probably just like more about rest or some form of rehabilitation, but how do you personally understand what's happening there? The medical profession, they would say rest and they would say it's about symptom management. Yeah. Because there's nothing else to be done. But we had discovered that it helped him to walk a long distance, not, not a couple of miles, but long distances, because those changes didn't kick in until, until maybe we'd done a couple of hundred miles that first time. Um, and over the years since that first walk and we've, we've found those changes, we've been trying to find a reason, trying to pin down a reason. Because obviously there isn't a huge body of research into this. And so the medical professionals can't say it's because of this or it's because of that, because they don't have that, that clean line of research that tells them 
was it is. So we've we've thought, is it time spent in the natural world? Is it is it our bodies reacting to to the chemicals emitted by by vegetation? That's something that happens. We've thought, you know, is it about the restricted diets that we we're always eating on a on a long distance backpacking trip where where you're carrying your food so you're not eating much? We've thought all sorts of things that might be the reason why, but over the years have ruled them out because that's we've found that not to be the case. More recently, I've been pinning down pieces of research into other other illnesses that are also tauopathies, mm. as CBD is, like Alzheimer's and other things that have more research done into them. Um, and I think somewhere in there, the answers are already there in the scientific research. It's just not been hung together mm. because it's not very often that somebody with a neurodegenerative disease can actually go out and make a, a long distance walk and do what is really actually endurance training. Um, so we're looking for answers mm. and starting to starting to actually feel as if we're pinning them down. I wonder if the answer could be all of the above. I mean, I'm not a doctor and you're not one either, but the psychological research I've seen, for example, on patients that are in hospital rooms that just have trees or plants or, or views of nature, they've been shown those patients tend to heal faster than those that are in rooms in which you just stare at concrete. I mean, I think there is a really interesting body of research that points to the fact that nature, even if we don't understand it fully, does have these healing capacities that we're just starting to understand slowly now. That is absolutely true. I mean, as you say, there's evidence out there that even, even just playing recordings of nature noises can help people heal more quickly. And I think actually when it comes down to it, we are fundamentally part of the natural world. We set ourselves apart from it. We try to tell ourselves that we're different to the natural world, but we're not. We're we're intrinsically enmeshed with the natural world. And I think I think somewhere in there is the answer. But now I'm starting to work towards pieces of research that are there that show it's actually what we're seeing are chemical changes within the body caused by that long distance walk, mm. the time spent being in the natural world and just moving as our bodies are built to do. Mm. So speaking of just what it is like to be out there and to be in that far northern part of Scotland, can you just tell us some of your observances? You write so descriptively about nature. And I wonder right now, as you just imagine that place and what it was like to move through it, what descriptions come to your mind? I think when I think of the very north of Scotland, I always get drawn back to um, one particular moment. Really, we were we were heading into into a stretch that's along the edge of a place known as the Great Wilderness, 
um, sort of speaks for itself, really, that we've got quite a few days between between places where we can stock up on food or habitation of any sort, really. And we we were standing on a, a, a rocky outcrop, looking ahead of us into the mountains of Scotland, trying to decide from the map that was blowing in the wind whether we went down the glen to the left or the one to the right. We were really hoping it was the one to the right because the one to the left seemed to be just funneling all of the, the rain clouds, the, the rain and the, the weather seemed to be funneling down the one to the left. But that was where we had to go. So we followed it down and by the time we reached the glen bottom and had to cross a river in order to carry on on the path. The rain was absolutely, absolutely completely pouring down so that the mountains weren't, mountainsides, they weren't forming just, just waterfalls. It was as if the entire mountainsides themselves became vast waterfalls and it was all falling down into this glen, gathering in the, in the river as we were trying to cross it. But we crossed it, knowing that if we passed through this glen, we had about three miles to go before we had another river to cross on the other side uh, to get out and beyond on the track we were following. Mm. So we headed into this glen, and it was it was just water. There was water falling from the mountains, water rising in the river. The, the trail itself was becoming underwater. And as I looked back towards Moth, in this wet, grey, incredible atmosphere. He tripped and he fell. And as I looked at him, he hit the ground and his head was just like skimming through the water, like a forming a plume, like a jet ski on the sea. And uh, as he crawled back up onto his knees, I could see it cut his head and it was pouring blood down his face. And I can see him now on his knees on the track, water everywhere on these dark black green hillsides. And knowing that we would have to put the tent up, but there was nowhere to put it because everywhere was just sodden and rock strewn and there was just nowhere to put the tent. Finally, we found this little mound of dry ground, pitched the tent, crawled inside, stuck his head back together with sutures and just waited for the rain to stop. But by halfway through the second day, it hadn't stopped. And it was just pouring down. The rivers had risen and risen and risen. So there was no way we would get out of the other end of the glen because we wouldn't be able to cross the river. A waterfall above us was just cascading down. But then suddenly the rain stopped and we could the noise of the drumming of the water on the tent just stopped. And we opened the tent flaps and out on this mound of dry ground was a stag that had come down from the hillside, a deer. And it was just standing there, equally probably just gone to the only piece of dry ground in the area. And as the rain stopped, the, the sun just broke through just beneath like shining beneath this really low, low-hanging, really dark black cloud. And it lit everything. It lit the water, it lit the river, it lit everything that was just covered in water. And this stag shook himself. He shook himself like, like a dog when it comes out of the bath. 
and it formed this arc of water around his body that picked up the light like a rainbow around his body and I've never seen anything so absolutely magical as this crystal lit glen and the rainbow stag but something more I think in that moment there was a real sense that we'd weathered that storm just the same as that stag had and we were as much a part of that river and the bog and the, the hillsides as he was mm. and and it was it was transformative in every way i think mm. and that's that's what the highlands felt like they felt like like we went in separate to the landscape we went into the landscape but we came out as the landscape mm. as part of it it was such a beautiful description and I, it's funny you as you were telling that to me there was this poem that i had come across recently by someone called hannah emerson and i i don't know if it's the same thing but but she writes and this is paraphrasing it says please try to go to hell frequently because you will find the light there. Please try to kiss the ideas that you find there. Please get that you are reborn there. And I, there was something that felt evocative in what you were saying and what this poet is saying is that in a sense, you're walking into darkness or hell or wherever, but in that process, there's one of transformation. And in the case that you're describing, it's actually one of, of being unified into the place that you are, if, if that makes sense. I think it's a really powerful poem and and speaks so directly to that experience we had of absolutely embracing the moment in which you're living, whether it's whether it's a great moment or whether it's the really darkest, deepest, hardest moment of life. That is that's where you find something in yourself that you've probably never recognized mm. that's where the transformation lies i think mm. in those those moments when you truly allow yourself to be within that experience mm. how did it feel to then kind of emerge out of a moment like that i mean one that to me seems just so rich with metaphor and knowing the illness that your husband has and i mean it to me it just seems like such a such a huge experience to sit with i think i think there was something really empowering about it because mm. we came out of of uh, that experience knowing that that the connection between us was was as powerful as our connection to to the earth itself and that however moth's illness went forwards whether it whether it improved with that walk or whether it continued to decline, that strength of connection that we had couldn't be broken. Mm. It couldn't be broken by, by returning to the normal world or by whatever course his illness ran. Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah, there's a strength there, I think, in allowing you to to face whatever comes next. Yes, and, and it makes me wonder, would you describe yourself as a spiritual person? And, and if so, or if not, how any of this interrelates uh, 
to being in experiences like that because I think that you know nature offers such powerful metaphor surrounding death or or unity with elements around you or so many other interesting just you know psychological features of being with the land I how, how would you answer that for yourself I've never regarded myself as having any any spirituality really and he certainly never never had any religious belief um and people have people have often said you know it's very spiritual what you write mm. but i think it's not i think it's something deeper than that i think when you talk about spirituality in that almost abstract way i think it takes something away from that real intense feeling of knowing something i don't think that's spirituality i think that's simply accepting what we are is it's just knowing knowing that we are the natural world not that we're observing it or we're we're custodians of it or none of that it's simply accepting that that earth that stag that water that's me mm. we're all of the same group of molecules we all we all live and breathe and exist as one thing and to me that's just a fundamental fact in my life so i don't see it as a spirituality although other people obviously obviously do do approach things you know in a different way to me but to me it's just it just is <laughs> mm. do you find when you're in the midst of, of that realization, and, and maybe you're able to live in that space more than others or someone like myself, but when you, when you glimpse that and then you also are thinking at the same time of your husband and his own mortality, which is kind of hanging in the balance here, do you find that you know, death is actually easier to accept knowing that there is this deep connection to the place in which we live that that you know that we're part of cycles we're part of something bigger is that a thought that comes to you as well i think it does i think i was i was in iceland once and um we were camping and it was really 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 cold and um we absolutely hadn't got the right sleeping bags and we got out of the tent in the middle of the night and there was frost on the tent and there was the northern lights, the aurora borealis was there mm. in the sky, and it was the most incredible. If you've ever seen it, it's it's just something that's almost impossible to describe because it's it's just such a magical movement of molecules and light. And and I think in that moment, just seeing that that movement of light in that way, that movement of, of molecules affected by, by the Earth's atmosphere, affected by the sun, affected by everything. I just knew that no matter what happens to us, we will just become part of this cycle of molecules. So none of us will ever go. We will all just be here reformed in a different way and in a way that does allow me to to not process the thought that one day he won't be there but to maybe 
allow it to feel a little, a little more acceptable. That, in some way, in that way, at least, we'll always all be here. If you're just joining us, my guest this hour is Raina Wynn, and we're discussing her new book called Landlines, the remarkable story of a thousand-mile journey across Britain. This is Life Examined on KCRW, and we'd love to hear from you. You can share your thoughts on our Facebook community. You can find a link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. We'll be back with part two of our conversation after this short break. Stay close. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. In the first half of the conversation, we heard Raina Wynn, author of Landlines, talk about some of the truly remarkable and magical moments she shared with her husband, Moth, during their thousand-mile walk from the tip of Scotland to Cornwall in the south of England. As we rejoin the conversation, Wynn shares her experience with homelessness, her fears and hopes for the planet, and plans for future walks. Let's dive back in. There's also some really other powerful themes that, that come up as you are hiking through Northern Scotland, like resilience and, and friendship and extinction. I mean, so many of these things were just sitting with you as you were on this journey. And I wonder, I named a few, but which of those could you help us explore as, as these other important things that were bubbling up in you? I think, um, I think the extinction wasn't something I expected to see or to be, to be considering within that walk, but, but it was there and it was visibly obvious. Um, we'd, we'd visited that area, as I talked about before, when we were really, really young, in our early twenties, we'd visited that area briefly. And so it was with the distance of time that we could see the changes in the landscape that we passed through. Um, especially further down in northern England, the, the changes were so, so vivid. Um, areas that were should, through the Pennines that should have been just vast blanket bogs were just dry and blowing in the wind. And I think, I think that really did bring into, into focus, um, the fact that, uh, that the climate is changing around us. But because we just observe things on an everyday sort of scale, we maybe just don't see it um, in the way that you can see it through time. Hmm. And, and how did that feel to you to just have that recognition again and to have to confront it really face to face? Um, I think momentarily there was a sense of a real sense of despair i think because because things need to change in order to arrest this they need to change so swiftly and i think we're all fairly aware that our human actions aren't aren't changing swiftly enough so initially it did leave a real sense of despair but then then we came into a part of of the Pennines, following a river down from its source, down into the Tees Valley. And suddenly there in that valley, um, there was, the sky was filled with this huge cloud of lapwings. 
Um, they're a bird that used to be really common when I was young. You used to, you'd walk through a meadow and there'd be, their little striped chicks would be running around your feet. But now you barely ever see any of them. But suddenly there in that valley, there were hundreds of them. And I couldn't see why. But then as we moved around into the main valley, the river was just the river banks were lined with um, wildflowers, wildflowers of every description, just just absolutely festooning river banks. And there, of course, with all that vegetation, was just an absolute abundance of insect life. Hmm. But I think more interestingly, in the meadows to the side of that, the farmers were cutting hay. But rather than cut down all those wildflowers, they were leaving them standing. And I thought, no wonder the, those birds are here, because they have a food source, because they have everything they need to thrive. And yet the farmer was still, still taking his crop, but the, the wildlife was still there in abundance. And in that, I thought, there is absolute hope, because because we can still sustain ourselves and yet allow the, the, the earth to regenerate if we approach it in the way that it was being approached in that valley. And we do it now, not in 10 years time. Mm. So it gave me a real sense of hope alongside the despair, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, it did. I think that's to me such, uh, a confusing and like bewildering place to have to sit, which is, you know, I'm someone who spends as much time as I can outside as well, like to sit with such overwhelming moments of beauty and the recognition of such destruction at the same time, right? Like these, we have to hold them together. And I think that can be a real challenge, right? It's it's kind of easy to fall either into despair or into some form of, of, of denial. Do, do you know what I mean? I do, I do, and it's very, very easy to do either. Um, but I think, I think we're in a point where we have to recognize where we are. We have to recognize the, the, the pain of, of what we've, what's happening to the planet, alongside the beauty of what is still here, because it's only by actually recognizing it that we can go forward in a way that actually we need we know we need to go it's it's the same as facing moth's illness it's the same as him feeling as if there was no way forward and it was overtaking him we could have just sat on the sofa and let it be and i could have just cared for him as his health declined that that we could do we could do that or we could say hard as it is difficult as it is we have to change the way we are living because that is how you are going to survive and we've got to face some really difficult choices. We've got to do things that make us uncomfortable. But if that's what we have to do for you to survive and for, to, for you to stay in this beautiful, wonderful life that we live and this relationship that we, we experience, 
then together Moth and I had got to put ourselves into a difficult position. It's the same. Mm. You have to face these things sometimes and they're hard. But if we don't face them, we can't change them. I also am really curious about some of the, the people that you met along the way too. It wasn't just experiences with nature, but with, well, with other humans who I know are part of nature. That's part of our conversation too here. But who were they? Were there any conversations or moments that, that really stuck out to you? As we were passing through the Pennines, we, were, we got caught in a thunderstorm and it was a, a wild storm of incredible rain and fork lightning and we were trying to get down off the moor um, and the path had turned into just mud and we were sliding down through a forest um, and coming the other way up through the forest track was this really old man carrying a rucksack water pouring from his rucksack pouring from his clothes huge white beard full of bits of stick and twig and, and vegetation and i was saying where are you going you know you need to get out of this storm where are you heading and he said oh i'm i'm walking the pennine way um i just do four or five miles a day i go as far as i can and then i stop um and we said, well, do you, do you want a cover for your rucksack or something to keep the rain out? And he said, no, no, I'm fine. Sun will come out tomorrow and I'll dry off. I'm just going to go and sleep in the woods and the trees will take care of me. Hmm. And he, he did. He just wandered away into the forest and that's where he must have spent the night. Days later, the sun was shining. It was, it was warm. The air was full of insects and um we were we were still walking on the pennine way and we saw another older man walking towards us dressed in lycra this time and and but looking really really unhappy and uh, we were saying yeah, everything okay where are you going you know are you on the pennine way and he said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on the Pennine Way, I'm walking it. Um, this is the fifth time I've walked it, but I will never walk this or any other long-distance path ever again. And I uh, almost didn't dare to ask him why, because I thought he was going to say he was dying. And uh, he said, no, I've always done the Pennine Way in 10 days, but I can't do it anymore, um, and this time... It's going to take me three weeks and I'm so ashamed of myself. I will never walk again. And I was absolutely struck by the, the contrast between those two people of the, the man in the woods who was just simply walking for the absolute joy of being on that path, putting one foot in front of another. And the other man who was walking for some sort of internal competition with himself and and having no joy and just sadness from it and i thought yeah really we really really need to examine what it is we're doing when we're walking what it is we're actually hoping for 
but more so not just walking it's in life isn't it you know we can we can embrace the rain and the mud and the pine needles and say this is life here's the joy here's the joy of life or we can say i can't do what i could do 20 years ago so there's no point even trying and i'm not even going to make the effort to to go out and look at the sunshine anymore mm. and i think we have to we have to embrace every moment of life we have to seize every moment and make it of the, of the best value we can make it be mm. you know it's interesting this is such a tension and a question and a theme that has arisen on this show so much which is these these kind of two different paradigms of living right one is one is just like the goal oriented and one is the process oriented and it's incredible like no matter how much i'm even confronted about the truth of this and understanding the beauty of process how easy it is to always fall back into competition and comparison and the looking up towards others of things we don't have it like it's this almost this like bitter fight in our humanity to make sense of this. It, does that, you know what I mean? It's like the tension is, it, it seems like it's been with us for so long. I think so, but that's, that's what's driven into our culture. And so it's part of our psyche almost. It's that sense of having to get on, do better, do better than your, your peer or your neighbor to achieve. It's, it's what we're, we're almost hardwired now to do and yet really if you step away from that when when we walked the southwest coast path um the walk that became the salt path that i wrote about that walk came about as a result of having lost our home of having lost just about every material thing we had but alongside that we'd lost the structure all that framework of life that we built that we do just like everybody else spent all our life building towards that had all gone and that in the space of that allowed us to experience life without that sense of being better striving forwards and just simply to experience life empty of all that and simply for what it was and that's something that i think has stayed with me ever since that sense of of life being so much more than what we achieve what we acquire it being about the process and i think that's such a good way of putting it it being about the process not the goal mm. and um it's about the journey, isn't it? Not the destination. And I'm so glad you you brought up what was, I know, an incredibly difficult part of your life, because I did want to ask about that, which was that there was this huge tragedy where you essentially were put into an, an unhoused or, or homeless situation. And I, I wonder if you could just share a little bit more about that, because I know that one of the things that came out of that was walking as well. Can you just talk more about that? Uh, yes. Um, Moth and I, we met when we were really young. Um, 
I was a teenager when we met and and through those early years together we had this idea, this dream really, that we would we would find a ruin in the hills, that we would be able to a place where we'd be able to find a way of our, our own life, a life that we could choose how to live. And maybe maybe a place where we could invite visitors in to stay with us, share our life, you know, pay the bills. And I think I was about 30 when we actually found that. Mm. We found that house. There was a ruin in the hills. There were holes in the wall and the roof was caving in. But it was what we wanted. It was perfect. And we spent the next 20 years of our life um, rebuilding that, converting the outbuildings so that visitors could stay, um, creating that idyll that we dreamt of when yeah. we were so young. Um, but in the background to that, we had a financial dispute with a lifetime friend that ended in court case that saw us being served with an eviction notice from that home. And it wasn't just like being evicted from our home, it was like being evicted from our life because it was our business, it was our source of income, it was where our children had grown up, where we'd had our family life. But it had been our life because we'd put everything into that. Our time, our effort, our money, everything had gone into that, that property. And so when it was gone, when it was taken from us, when it was about to be taken from us, we couldn't envision that anything could possibly be worse. But it was during the week that we were packing those 20 years of life into boxes that Moth was diagnosed with his illness. And suddenly then we realised that we weren't just losing our past, we were also losing our future, mm. our future together. And it, it was in the very last moments as we were about to leave the house, as the bailiffs were knocking at the door, um, that I spotted a book in a packing case. And it was a book I'd read decades before about a young man who'd walked the southwest coast path with his dog. And we knew in that moment that we were about to become homeless because we couldn't find anywhere to live. There was nowhere for us to stay. And just suddenly in that moment, that moment of despair, we just, the idea of filling a rucksack and just going for a walk seemed like the most obvious thing to do because to walk on a path means that you are following a map. It means that you've got a direction and a purpose and a route forwards. And that first walk, that is what that's what we were looking for, was something that gave us a route forwards in life, in a life that had become just a void, really, because everything that had filled our lives was gone. And so we started to walk to give ourselves a sense of purpose, to, to give us a reason to go on. But then as we walked on those incredible headlands with the sea always on one side, then we came to realise that actually we were just walking for the sake of the next step, for the sake of the view from the next headland. And the future just melted away, but so did the past. And all the anxiety and bitterness that we'd carried from losing our house, it just dissipated on those headlands. 
and at the same time as the fear about what the future would hold and it became about that moment right now like a little like a, a sort of bubble of time that that moved across the headlands with us and outside of that didn't matter i think hmm. well i wonder how moth is now how you are you've shared i think just so so intimately about these journeys these difficulties these moments of arrival to new ideas where where are you now where is he how, how do things feel well moth since since discovering the things we did about his health as we walked the thousand miles down the country that became the book landlines um we discovered so much about his health then that he now walks every day because we know he has to. Um, and his, his health is still really good because, because he pushes himself every single day. But we know we're getting closer to the need for a much bigger walk. Um, so next year we've got quite a few plans for, for routes that are yet untrod by us. So that's where the future will take us. More paths, more trails, more adventures. <laughs> well, Reina, I'd, I'd love if we could end with a reading of your choice. Can you just tell us what, what you have for us, set it up, and we, we'd love to hear it. Um, what I've got is a very small piece from the very end of Landlines. Um, it's a tiny bit about when we're coming to the end of our walk. The sun rises on one final morning. We pack the tent in the early light and walk more slowly than we have for months along a path that rises and falls over headlands so familiar our feet follow the path while our thoughts fly on the wind. We drop down into Polpero, then finally to Pencaro Head and beyond to the last bench before Polroon. A place where I've watched storms change the landscape and sunsets turn the water to the colours of burnt earth. A place I've run to in times of fear and despair. But always a place where my eyes are drawn to the horizon, to the possibility that hangs there in the play of light between cloud and sea. Sitting here at the southern edge of the land, I'm overwhelmed by the sense of an island of a thousand miles of heath, moor and mountain, stretching all the way back to the north coast, to the beach at Chagra. The start of a path where we put ourselves in the way of hope and then let fate take its course. We follow the last steps down into Polruan to a village where all our paths seem to end and to the waiting arms of family and Monty, who explodes with dog-shaped joy. The word Chagra seems to have no meaning in any language, but I know what it means. Hope. The Chagra Trail. The Trail of Hope. Well, it's been such a wonderful pleasure to be joined by Raina Wynn, author most recently of Landlines, the remarkable story of a thousand-mile journey across Britain. Raina, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us on KCRW. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. 
All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. And thanks for joining us for this week's conversation. We'd love to hear from you on our Facebook group. You can find a link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. And don't forget, if this or any of our shows was particularly meaningful to you, tell your friends or share the show via text or social media. It's a great way to stay connected. And honestly, that's how this show has grown from person to person, from show to show. So please share what you like. You can connect with me on Instagram or TikTok. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion. This is Life Examined on KCRW. Thanks again for joining us. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you soon. Take care.